The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Today we're looking at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Follow along as I read James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, and I'm only going to address the first six verses. James, the half-brother of our Lord, one of the key leaders of the early church, equal in authority to the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, and even the Apostle John, writes the following to early church saints. What is the source of quarrels, or literally wars, and conflicts among you? Why are you fighting in the church? Wow. Startling. Is not the the source your pleasures, or literally hedonism is the Greek word, that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have. So you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility or hatred towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But he gives, he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. And the first time I read that this week, I went, wow. This is not going to be a warm and fuzzy sermon this week for my people. James, why are you so angry? Pastor James? Actually, some people will say that James chapter 2 is the hardest passage in this book. I think this is. Wait, he's talking to Christians? He's talking to believers? He's talking to people he used to interact, interface with in Shepherd, and he was their pastor, and now he's using this unbelievably harsh language and pointing the finger at them. You lust. You murder. It says murder. He does it again in chapter 5 in verse 6. You've condemned and put to death or murdered the righteous man. Wow. Is James talking to believers? Christians? How can he use that scathing... Harsh, black and white terminology. How can James say to a Christian congregation, you murderers, you adulteresses? So, if you're struggling with that right now, I was struggling with it when I first read it this week and all week long. As a matter of fact, I think everything in the book of James, chapters 1, 2, and 3, is leading to this chapter in chapter 4. This is the climax of the book. I think this is really what motivated James to write with a sense of urgency to these saints who were out and abroad and he was getting word, man, they got all kinds of problems. And the worst problem they got is right here in chapter 4. Because every chapter is addressing problems in their congregations and in their midst as professing believers. And it's not an isolated issue. He is using a plural nouns. He's using 
uh, present tense verbs, which means it's an ongoing regular pattern of behavior. Plural nouns means it's a collective problem and not an isolated issue. This was widespread in the church. Terminology in verse 1, what is the source of wars? That's the word polemo, polemo, polemics, warring in the New Testament. It refers to literal wars, or actually in the Bible, literal wars and also used figuratively of people fighting. So very strong language. War, murder, lust, adulteresses, adultery. We'll get to that. Verse 4. The devil's involved in all this. Man. So this is the passage we're going to look at today. Um, by the way, it's kind of interesting. You know, some people might be thinking, well, we've been in the book of James, and how come Pastor Cliff hasn't been talking about the gospel and uh, the cross and all that? Did you know that the word cross, the word resurrection, the word gospel is not in this book? I mean, I can throw it in there here and there, and it is the answer to everything, but it, that's not what's being addressed. James did not address his many congregations. That wasn't the issue. That wasn't what they needed to hear. Um, so I'm just dealing with what James said we need to deal with. This is appropriate to our church primarily. So the audience is believers. This is written to churches, to Christians and professing Christians who have been living the Christian life for over a decade now and now they've settled in and we all settle in and we lose that freshness and that zeal when you first become a believer and when you've been living in this world after you've lost all your zeal, certain things kind of kick in uh, in your Christian life and that's trials and temptations and you realize, wow, being a Christian really isn't easy after all. And it kind of sets in for uh, seasoned believers and more mature believers. And they, re- they get a more realistic view of the Christian life and not an idealistic one. And that's what was going on here. James is addressing that. So in chapter 1, he was addressing seasoned believers who've been believers for almost 20 years, reminding them in chapter 1, as a Christian, you've got to deal with trials and temptations in your life, and here's how. Then he got into chapter 2, and when you've been living the Christian life for a while... And you're just wondering, man, Jesus was supposed to come 15 years ago and it never happened. What's going on? And uh, we get apathetic because of uh, just many of the trials of life and things going on in our world. We can get apathetic, lethargic, losing, once again, our zeal, our passion. And that's what he addressed in chapter 2 to these Christians. They had lost some passion. They were lethargic. They weren't doing good deeds anymore like they should be. But it was all talk and somewhat intellectual in the way they understood and practiced their Christian faith. And so that's what he addressed in chapter 2. And then as you live the Christian life and life goes on, you realize that you've got problems in your life and sin in your life. And one of the areas of sin that we are so prone to and fall so easily to is with control of our mouth. It affects us in every area of life. Our marriages, our families, uh, our work in the church, among saints, before God, how we serve, and reigning in self-control of our mouth is such a big challenge in our life, and that's why he addresses that in chapter 3. You guys have been believers for a while. You've got, you've got to be reminded to control your mouth and your words in personal conversation and also in the public assembly. So these are great reminders for church people, for people who've been Christians for a while, because all of these trials are coming to all of us, aren't they? I know they are to me. So James, is, he's talking to me. So we can benefit a lot. And so now he gets to chapter 4. And the theme of chapter 4 is James is addressing unity and division in the church. So when you have a church that comes together and exists for a prolonged period of time, when you've got sinners rubbing shoulders together, coexisting, living for a protracted period of time, inevitably you will have division, won't you? 
you will have problems. It happens in the church. It happens in our families. It happens in marriages. It happens in any organization. That's just the reality of sinful people living together in community. And that's what's happening here. And so that is actually the theme of chapter 4, dealing with division and trying to promote harmony in the local church among the body. So that's what we can take away from this is uh, the reality, facing the reality of division and factions. What is the source of that? And then pursuing the goal, which is harmony and reining that in. So let's go ahead and look at verses 1 through 6. And I just broke it down into four points there for you in your handout. And the first one there that I want to address is verse 1. And that is the reality of worldliness in the church. The reality of worldliness in the church. The, the common word in all four points here is going to be worldliness because that's the theme that James is addressing and confronting in verse 4 where he says, if you're an enemy of God, you're a friend of the world. Or when you act this way, you are like the world. So it's worldliness. That's the theme. That's the problem here. So if I were to, don't answer out loud, but answer in your own mind. Or maybe you just write this on a piece of paper. If I were to ask you, it's just kind of diagnostic. It's very interesting to see what your thinking is compared to Scripture. If you had to define worldliness in a sentence or less, with a bullet point or two, how would you define worldliness? Answer that in your own mind. How would you define worldliness? Because that's the issue he's addressing here. And, I mean, typically, here's how we would answer. This is how I would initially be prone to answer. Oh, worldliness? That's, well, that's sexual immorality. It's got to be, right? Uh, materialism, uh, stealing, murder, that's worldliness. And I'd say, well, those are all a part of or byproducts of worldliness, but they're actually not at the heart of a definition of biblical worldliness as defined and delineated in Scripture. And I'd say the, the most succinct or if you had to distill it all down to either a phrase or a word, best biblical definition of worldliness just to get to the essence of it and everything else flows from that, I would say is love of self. Love of self. Because it drives everything else. What is worldliness? It is love of self. Now, at first blush, I wouldn't have said that. I wouldn't have thought that. But just going into the details of this passage and then, wow, looking at other passages, that's clear. Love of self. Seeking to fulfill and satisfy self first. Over and above others, over and above God. Which makes that the very antithesis of the great commandment according to God, right? If you could sum it all up, the commandment is loving others, loving God, or loving God and loving others, which is the exact opposite of worldliness. It is loving self, pursuing satisfaction for self. That is the essence of worldliness. And the greatest illustration of worldliness and worldly behavior would be Satan himself, and he is incarnate self-love. It's interesting. So if you took that as a definition and you went to, I want you to flip to two passages. First uh, John chapter 2 and then keep your finger in Galatians chapter 5. And this is just going to accentuate our de- definition according to the Bible of what worldliness really is and what James is talking about. In First John chapter 2, Tim read this earlier. He's talking to Christians. John the Apostle is in 1 John chapter 2 in the back of your Bible there, 15 and 16. And he says, do not love the world. He's talking to Christians. Do not love the world. Nor the things in the world. And Christians stumble over that exhortation. Oh, does that mean I can't watch television anymore? That's actually not what he's saying. That could be a problem, but that's, that's, not, a, that's not directly what he's saying. That could be an implication, but that's not what he's saying. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. Okay, well, and then he goes on, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Wow. Well, what is 
What does it mean to love the world? And thankfully, John answers the question for us in verse 16. He defines worldliness or the love of the world. What is it? It's short, but it's comprehensive. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That is the love of the world. That is worldliness. And notice, they are all me-centered. They are all bent on self-centered attitudes, perspectives, and behaviors. Fulfilling my lusts, the lust of my flesh, the lust of my pride, the lust of my eyes, it's all self-centered. It is all self-centered behavior. That's what drives worldliness. And it gives birth to every other conceivable sin. Now, complementing that, go back to Galatians chapter 5. And here, uh, Paul's making a contrast between godly behavior as you live in the Spirit, worldly behavior that is sinful and fleshly, and he actually gives and delineates characteristics of what this looks like, of worldly behavior. Well, what does worldly behavior look like? What are its fruits? What are the attributes? What are the characteristics? How does it manifest itself? He tells us in Galatians 5.19. Now, the deeds of the flesh... Oh, verse 18 says, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the sinful flesh, or worldliness, if you want to. Now, the deeds of the flesh, they're evident. They are clear. Well, what are they? Immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. So he gives 15 and he says, and there's others as well. He gives 15 specific ones. Now, if you were to catalog or categorize or give a taxonomy of these 15 attributes in 19 through 21, it's kind of interesting the way it breaks down. Yeah, there's uh, immoralities there. But the dominant one that has actually nine characteristics attributed to it has to do with how we relate to other people. Social implications. And they all have to do with division. And it's all rooted in the fact that it comes out of uh, pursuing self and our selfish desires. If you look at these attributes, look at all these that are socially related and have to do with fighting with other people and not getting along with other people. Um, Enmity, that means fight. Hatred, strife with other people, jealousy towards other people, outbursts of anger towards other people, disputes when you're fight with other people, dissensions, factions, envying other people. See, nine, the common characteristic is they all have to do with how we relate to other people. They all contribute to division in the church, divisiveness in relationships. And the heart of that, James is going to tell us, is it all comes down to worldliness in our heart, and that is this insatiable, nonstop pursuit of self-fulfillment in our life and in our heart. So worldliness is relational. It affects other people, but it starts of an attitude in the heart of being self-serving, totally self-centered. So let's go ahead back to James chapter 4 and we'll look at these points. And point number one is, I've got it there for you, is that the, the reality of worldliness in the church, as I said, and he, he just James is being realistic. He's a pastor. He loves these people. These are believers. There's probably some weeds in there among the wheat, and they're kind of messing things up and causing the problems, spreading gossip, whatever, and Satan's fanning the flame. That's true. That's always going to be true in the church. But the reality is he is addressing them as believers. All throughout the book, he's saying, my brethren, my brethren, my brethren. What does that mean? That's an affectionate term of endearment. My fellow Christians, my fellow lovers of Jesus. And he's done that repeatedly up to this point. My brethren, my brethren. That's compassionate, affectionate terminology of the common bond they have in Jesus Christ. And then, boom, he punches him in the nose in chapter 4. 
You adulteresses. Wow. That seems, how can you possibly be a brethren lover of Jesus and an adulterer? How can you possibly be a fellow Christian, my brethren, and be an enemy of God and a lover of the world? Well, yeah, that's, that's a problem. And that's what he's addressing here. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. So two points there is regarding the reality of worldliness in the church is this verse, more than just about any verse in the New Testament, reminds us that the apostles were not made of marble. The early church wasn't perfect, was not pristine, was not without fault, was not without flaw and huge, tremendous, horrible conflict. You've got to be a realist when you think about the church. Churches have problems. Why? Because churches have people and people have sin. And that's the issue. And then there's Satan, the Satan factor, who seeks to create division in the church continually and constantly to destroy unity, to mess up the testimony of the church to the world, to grieve Christ. So there is problem in the church. There was problem in James's churches. There was problem in James's church in Jerusalem. That's why Acts 15 was written. It was a horrible problem. Very divisive. There was problems and division in the leadership of the early church. And among the people of the church in James' day, there has been all throughout church history. There is today in 2012 in the Silicon Valley. There is at GBF and there is at any church on planet Earth today. And if you don't see it, that doesn't mean it's not happening. There is ongoing continual problems in the church. Sometimes it's hidden and only in the heart or the mind of a person as they're trying to guard and protect it and hide it. But I just appreciate that James is a realist. Man, there's fighting and arguing and warring going on in your church among the Christians. This is horrible. Why are you doing this? He has the answer. It's a rhetorical question. But he's, he's causing them to pause and think. Why are you warring with one another? Why are you fighting, arguing, bickering? And then James gives the answer. Uh, the second part of verse 4, he says, well, I'll tell you, uh, it, it is because of the hedonism in your heart. When he says of the pleasures that wage war in your members, the members he's talking about is inside of your body. This is the same terminology Peter uses when he says that your lust wages war against your soul, Christian. There's a civil war inside of every Christian. And it is their desire to be godly and the Holy Spirit that lives in you and the reality that sin also lives in us. And that's why Paul said, Oh, wretched man that I am. I am sick of this internal civil war in my soul. And he, he prays for the resurrection in Romans 8. And that's what's going on. So James says the same thing here. You know, the heart of the problem, here's the diagnosis. The reason you have quarreling, fighting, arguing in the church as believers is because you have a problem on the inside. It is your sin. It is not being reined in. Your sin is not being curbed. It is hedonism. It is selfish fulfillment, desires and pleasure. It is all self-focused. It is all self-centered. Get your eyes off self. That's what James is saying. And it's a reality. So you can at least thank God that in His Word, He gives us a true diagnosis. And as Christians, we can be honest and Deal with the problem. You know, we, we, we don't say to the world, oh, the church, we never have problems. Hey, become a Christian and come and join our happy club. It's romper room and everybody's happy and plays and gets along and holds hands and sings kumbaya and eats cotton candy all the time. We don't have problems in the church. That's not realistic, right? The reality is, and what honors Christ is, we are honest about our problems. We confront our problems openly and honestly and with courage and in truth and patiently and prayerfully and seeking God's wisdom. We seek to resolve those problems. We ask for God's help and hopefully we overcome those problems and then we grow and learn as a result and God gets all the glory for it. And the reason we can do that is because Jesus Christ dealt with all of these sins and problem issues by His perfect life 
His uh, submissive, willing death on the cross for our sinful behavior. His powerful resurrection that conquered all of these sins eternally and ultimately anyway as He reigns on high. The Gospel is the solution to these problems for church people. We can't uh, have a facade and pretend we don't have problems. Oh, my family's perfect and my life is perfect and my church is perfect and on and on. That's just not reality. It's not being honest. I forget when I was in college and a, a new let's say I was a Christian about a year and then I had two roommates who were believers and we got along great and we all and we liked basketball and we had a roommate uh, I mean a, a dorm mate next to us who we were we were befriending we we're sharing the gospel with him we know he's not a Christian he admits he's not a Christian and we used to play basketball together all the time we went to play two on two in the gym one night I'll never forget it and. I think it was me and some other guy on the other... Yeah, my buddy. He's like my best friend. He was in my wedding. He's my roommate. Well, we got in a little squabble on the basketball court. Because he fouled me. But anyway, I'm, I'm over it now. This was 20 years ago. <clears throat> so we're actually squabbling on the... It's just little bickering that you do when you're playing basketball. But you're still... Play, the game isn't stopped. We're still going. It, we're both very competitive. And, you know, it's a big deal, that this two-on-two game. Everything's on the line. Our reputations are on the line and everything. So... So we're doing a little squabbling, and this guy who's not a Christian, he's there playing with us, and he's witnessing all this. And so we're walking back to the dorm, and he says, uh, yeah, I'm never going to become a Christian. And we're like, well, why not? Well, you guys were fighting on the basketball court. I'm like, serious? Yeah, no, we were, yeah, we had a disagreement. What does that have to do with you becoming a Christian? Well, you guys are hypocrites. And so we kind of stopped and talked about it and said, well, uh, well here's how it works. Um, you shouldn't refrain from believing in Jesus because of our sin. You should believe in Jesus because Jesus is perfect and He never sins. And Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And you know what we told Him? We are going to sin, so don't let us be a stumbling block. On the one hand, we, we apologize. We're sorry for a stumbling block right to you right now, so forgive us. But also at the same time, we challenged Him. If you're using this as a scapegoat and an excuse, that's illegit. Jesus is perfect. It's all about Him. He is the God-man. He will never let you down. That's why you should believe in Jesus. And I think he became a believer a couple of years later, so that was very exciting. So anyway, uh, we need to be realistic about problems, squabbles, worldliness, self-centeredness in the church. And diagnose it properly. It always starts at the heart level. The manifestation of it came later. That's the fruit. Let's go on to point number two that James wants to make after the reality of worldliness in the church, the reasons for worldliness in the church. And this flows right out of the second part of verse 1 because he already introduced part of the reason. Isn't the source or some of the reasons for it that uh, your hedonism inside, your sin, your catering to your sinful desires on the inside? And then here are practical reasons he gives several of them for worldliness. Uh, verses 2 and 3, he says you lust. You lust. Epithumia. Thumos. Thumeo. Thumeo means to have a desire. To desire. And in the Bible, in the New Testament, that can be a good desire or a bad desire. Thumos. Many times it refers to anger. And that could be righteous anger or sinful anger. This is epithumos. This is passion, craving, desire, run amok. Because it's emphatic. This is desire totally out of control. You lust. An insatiable, lusting passion on the inside to fulfill yourself. And that's why you have factions. Because what happens, when somebody's lusting after their own 
desires, what they have, they have an agenda, right? I want this and this and this and this. And I want it to go this way, this way, this way in the church. I want this color carpet. I want this kind of music. I want this kind of Bible teacher. I want, and you've got an agenda based on your inner lust. And then when you have in the church agendas clashing, what do you have? You have a squabble. You have a fight. You have dissension. That's what he is talking about. It's not thinking about others. It's not thinking about God. It is self-centered instead of other-oriented. You lust and you do not have. Then you get angry because you don't get what you want. Like a little three-year-old baby. I want my cookies. Well, eat your spinach first. No, I want my cookies. And so you commit murder. Whoa, strong language. The word there for murder means murder. But it is used figuratively at times. And I put it down there for you. One place where it's used figuratively uh, is in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, where John the Apostle says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Wow. Well, why did John say that? Well, he got that from Jesus because Jesus taught John, Jesus taught James in Matthew 5, 21 and 22 and other places that you have heard it was said that murder is wrong. I tell you, hating your brother is wrong. It is equally as wrong. Why do people murder? Because they hate. What came first? Hatred. Every act of hatred is potential murder. Every murder is rooted in hatred. Hatred is the root. Murder is the fruit. It's just where are you on the pendulum or the spectrum? And that's why James can say, well, what you're doing is you're living a life of self-love, which means it's actually hatred and disregard for your fellow brother, which is hatred to the core, hatred of the heart, which could manifest itself literally and does routinely in murder. And that's why he uses this, this stark, startling, strong, turbulent language to kind of smack him upside the head and say, do you realize what is going on here? I'm your pastor. I love you. And this, this shouldn't be happening. That's what he's doing. He's being pastoral with a very strong exhortation, being dramatic, emphatic, to rock them to the core. You lust, you do not have, you commit murder. In other words, you're acting like you're full of hate, you are envious. These are all present tense verbs, which means this has been an ongoing pattern of behavior in the churches for a while. What else do they do? They envy, but they can't obtain. They fight and quarrel. They're bickering, they're warring. Uh, you do not have because you do not ask. That's right out of Jesus said that. You don't have because you ask. You have not because you ask not. So James is saying, you know, some of you have desires, but you don't even ask. And that's why one of the reasons why you don't have. You have a need, but you don't ask. You just try to take it upon yourselves and take over, manipulate the situation. That's what he means at the end of verse 2. And then there's a, a corollary. Other people were, uh, verse 3, you ask, but you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. So there are some people who don't ask, and they just try to take over and manipulate the situation. And there are others who do ask, and they ask the wrong with the wrong motives and desires. And sometimes they actually ask God. God, give me this. God, give me that. God, give me, give me, give me, give me. Like God is some gene. It's all self-serving. And that's what he's rebuking in verse 3. When you ask and go to God in prayer, you don't go with an agenda or eyes on self with the wrong motives. That's, that's name it and claim it theology today in America. Give me, give me, give me. And God will give it to you. That isn't how it works. That is the exact opposite of what he says in the same chapter in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, right? Not gimme, gimme, gimme. It's what God wants. If God wills. God vet my desires because they might be self-serving, perverted, and corrupt. God, only what you will. Verse 15. Great counter and balance to that. So you, you ask with the wrong motives... 
hoping to get what you want so that you may spend it on your hedonism, yourself. Oh, I'm pleased. Oh, we're finally singing the songs that I like in church. One example. Why am I picking on music so much? Well, because music is a point of contention in the local church, has been. Churches that are written today, there's church, uh, books called, sorry, per, uh, books that have written today about the church. There's a book called Church Wars. It's about fighting in the church about music. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest pastors of a century plus ago, referred to his music department in his church as the war department. The war department. So this is not new. Contention uh, with the music folks in the church and all about music and preferences. That's been going on for 2,000 years. So those are the reasons uh, of why we have factions, quarrels in the church. It's because of lust, hatred, envy, not asking God, asking God the wrong way, asking with the wrong motives to be self-serving. Those are the biblical reasons why we have factions in the church, division in the church. So that means that the reasons that aren't the cause would be it's not our environment, it's not your environment. It's not your upbringing. It's not your physiology. It's not your education. It's not your parents. It's not your surroundings. Those aren't the real reasons. Those can be related in secondary issues, but they're not the driving force or the cause of the issue. James has given us the inspired problem. So we've got the reality of worldliness in the church. Let's be honest about it. We've got the reasons for worldliness in the church that manifest in division and factions, and it's continually an ongoing battle in the church. We need to deal with it. And then number three, uh, is the results of worldliness in the church. What does this do when you've got ongoing self-centered schisms in the church? Uh, it's horrible on a personal level and on a corporate level. So verses 4 and 5, James tells us, you adulteresses. Adultery is when you are unfaithful to your spouse. This word adultery is used dozens and dozens of times in the Old Testament figuratively, spiritually, when Israel was supposed to be committed and married only to Yahweh God, and yet there were times where they turned from Him and served other gods, Baal and other false gods. That was spiritual adultery. And over and over again, Yahweh said, you're betraying your wedding oaths, your marriage oaths to me. You're committing spiritual adultery. And James is saying that Christians are doing the same thing here in the New Testament. They are married to and bent on serving their pleasures and self instead of bent on and serving God, their Lord. That's why it's called adultery. It's spiritual adultery. And that's why he says, you adulteresses. And that doesn't mean categorically every single person James was talking to was doing this, but basically what he's saying is if the shoe fits, wear it. If you are acting like this, thinking like this, living like this, then you are a spiritual adulterer. And you need to repent. Do you not know that friendship with the world, in other words, if you're indulging yourself in worldliness and self-love, that characterizes how the world operates, by the way. That's friendship with the world, the world system. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Wow, you. And then the second part of that verse, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And he's talking to Christians. Really, what he's saying here is you, you look like unbelievers. You guys call yourselves Christians. I've interfaced with you, and you've had communion in my church in Jerusalem. And from a distance, in light of your ongoing behavior, some of you, you look like unbelievers. You look like the world. I can't distinguish you from the world. That's what he's saying. Now, no doubt, some people came to their senses and were convicted by the Spirit of God and repented of their sin and turned back to God. I'm convinced that happened because that's how true believers should act and many times by the grace of God do act. They turn from their sin. 
Then he goes on verse 5. And he just reminds them from Scripture. These were Jewish believers. They were raised in the synagogue. They were raised on the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the entire Old Testament. They had much of it memorized. They knew it inside and out. And so James just gives this generic reminder. What I'm saying is consistent with Old Testament Scripture, which you say you believe and committed to. And that general truth, this is not an exact verse taken from anywhere in the Old Testament, but it is a general truth taught all over the Old Testament, the middle of verse 5. Do you not think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? Quote, an Old Testament truth. He, God, jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Quote. In other words, if you belong to God, God is jealous for you. He wants your allegiance and your allegiance only. He wants loyalty to God and God alone and to Christ and Christ alone and to the truth and truth alone. Not You can't be serving self and serving God at the same time. Impossible. That's what the Scripture says. If you're a believer, the Spirit of God lives in you. You belong to God. You are His property. He will defend you. He will hound you. He'll go after you. He'll rebuke you. He will give you grace. He owns you. He wants you and you alone. He's not going to share you with anybody, anything else. That's what He's saying. Christians need to be absolutely single-minded on the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, God our Father, the Holy Spirit, and His truth. Anything that detracts from that undermines our faith. That's what He's saying. So the results are, when you're not guarding your heart and you allow these attitudes to creep in, you're acting like the world. You're acting like an unbeliever. Don't do that. Then he goes on to his last point, and that's point number four, the remedy. Well, what do we do about this? Because we all, we all struggle um, with these sins or temptations. By the way, that's an important point. A lot of the three previous points I just made, I need to highlight, accentuate, and remind all of us that true Christians, true believers, every single one of us that is a born-again Christian today, every single one of us is susceptible to every conceivable sin. Did you know that? Some of you might not believe it. Well, I'd never murder, really. Have you ever had hatred in your heart? Well, according to Scripture, you're a murderer. You have the profile of a murderer. You just haven't acted on it yet. Wow. That's alarming, isn't it? Every single Christian is vulnerable, susceptible to some degree, me included, to any conceivable sin. That is frightening. That's why Paul says in Corinthians, if you don't believe that, then take heed lest you fall. Man, if you start trusting yourself, you are going to fall. If you trust yourself, you have a blind spot. And that's really what he's getting at here throughout this whole thing. They, They are susceptible to the worst kinds of sins. Hatred, murder, Loving the world, hating God. Wow. So point number four, the remedy for worldliness in the church or self-centeredness that results in divisions and schisms and fighting and self-fulfillment and contrary agendas is in verse 6. Actually, 6 and on, but we'll just look at the first part in verse 6. Here's the remedy. Again, he's talking to true believers. That's why the beginning of verse 6 is true. Boy, here's all the horrible things you're doing. And we're hearing about it and it's, it's evidence. But, so he makes a contrast in verse 6 and it's good news. But he gives a greater grace. He is God. Boy, in light of all these horrible, horrific sins that you're committing that are dividing the churches, despite all that, because you truly are believers, God who owns you, wants you, cares about you, wants your good, He gives a greater grace. The grace of God. What is, what is grace? Grace is when God blesses us and we don't deserve it. 
Grace is when, when we deserve judgment, God gives us forgiveness. That is grace. Grace is something, it's a good gift from God that we didn't earn, we didn't work for it, we didn't even deserve it. That is the grace of God. And that's what he's talking about. So that's a beautiful verse. So this sermon does end on a good note. You can, uh, hopefully you'll get your appetite back after we're done with verse 6. God, He gives a greater grace. You know what He's saying? He's saying what Paul said in Romans, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Isn't that good news? That is good news. You know another way of stating that? That He gives a greater grace? Or where Paul said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? Another way of saying it is, if you are truly a born-again Christian, you can't out-sin God's forgiveness. That is an amazing concept. We don't want to abuse God's forgiveness and be presumptuous, but that is the truth for every believer. You can't out-sin the forgiveness of God. And so if you're a believer this morning and you're thinking, well, God doesn't love me anymore, or there's no way He can forgive this sin, that's a lie, that is not true. His grace is greater than your sin. If you're an unbeliever, you're not a Christian here this morning, you're thinking, well, you don't know my past and the horrific things I've done and I, I, I don't deserve to become a Christian and, and God can't save me. No, yeah, He can. Actually, you're, you're, you're right and you're wrong. You're right in that you don't deserve to become a Christian. Uh, you're wrong in that saying you can't because God can. God's grace is greater than your sin as an unbeliever. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, got executed for every single sin you committed. If you believe that and put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and His death and resurrection on your behalf, God will forgive you and adopt you into His spiritual family. That is the good news. And that's what verse 6 means. God's grace is greater. It's greater than all of our sin. And that's why he quotes from the Old Testament. There are actually two verses that say this. Therefore, it says, therefore, the Old Testament Scriptures say, therefore, God says, God is opposed to the proud. He doesn't like proud people. He doesn't like proud hearts. It's actually the worst sin. Pride. Love of self. Being self-serving. God hates it. He's opposed to it. You take away His blessing when you indulge in it. God is opposed to the proud. But, good news, God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to those who are repentant, who are broken, who go before God admitting that all of their sin, that they were wrong, that they have offended God, that they recognize their sin, that they weep over their sin, and all that they've done wrong. And if they go honestly before God asking for His grace, His forgiveness, His salvation... God will grant that to any sinner that pleads with Him. That is the heart of God and the grace of God. This is an amazing God that we serve. And that is the good news. That's the whole point of the Gospel and what Jesus came to do. That was God's eternal plan in eternity past before God created the world. Jesus, the Father and the Spirit, agreed to have Jesus come to the earth that He created as the God-man. Take on a human body in a cursed earth to people who have been cursed by sin and face eternal death. And the Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect life for 33 years without sin as the God-man. Willingly went to execution at a Roman cross. Willingly, knowingly, as it was a part of His plan, as He got executed and the hands went in His nails and in His feet, He knew He was being punished not just by the Romans. Ultimately, He's being punished by God His Father from heaven with spiritual, eternal, holy wrath from God down on the cross in a spiritual transaction where Jesus was being executed for every sin that was ever being committed by humanity and sinful people. And Jesus willingly died as the substitute for sinner, all sinner, absorbed the wrath of God 
died, was buried, rose again, conquering death, sin, hell, the world. For anyone who would come to Jesus Christ, pleading with Him for grace as the Savior. And then Jesus answers that prayer by saving them, forgiving them of their sin. Because He took their place. That is amazing grace, isn't it? With that great truth, we can go to communion now and meditate on that wonderful truth as even you meditate in your own heart when communion comes around. to be thank- First confessing your sin, searching your own heart, pouring it out to God, asking Him for forgiveness, and then thanking the Lord Jesus Christ for that promise of forgiven sin. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, we thank You for our time together and uh, the time we've had in the book of James. It's just a really heavy chapter, Lord, that You've confronted us with, but You've told us that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. It's profitable for us to be rebuked, to be encouraged, for us to learn and for us to grow. So I do pray that we can think about things that James has written that the Spirit of God has impressed upon our hearts so that we might be able to do all those things that You've asked. Change our life, grow, learn, be sensitive to You and Your truth. And thank You most of all for Your wonderful grace that You've given us as sinners in the person of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.